0: So week one of church history um, our goal during the next it's this week and four more weeks is to um, kind of do a, a brief study of many of the reformers we won't get to all of them and we will not do as in-depth a study as I personally would prefer uh, just because of time constraints um, but um, we should get through a lot of information um, what I'd like for you to guys to do this morning, is all stand up, no I'm just kidding, uh, turn your Bibles to 1st Samuel chapter 7, as you're turning there, um, what I want you to look at here is, actually it's going to be primarily in verse 12, but let's look at verse 10 and read 1st Samuel 7, 10 through 12, and I'll read. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far below beth And then verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So you think about the word Ebenezer, a couple things come to mind. Firstly for me is Ebenezer Scrooge. Some of you guys that know me, actually nobody probably knows this about me. My my favorite story in literature is A Christmas Carol. And I always think of Ebenezer Scrooge. And that really has a negative connotation for the term Ebenezer. And then I had done some reading a few years back and somebody had referenced this the term Ebenezer, that it's in the hymnal, in the, it's the second verse of Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, except it's not in our hymnal. I learned that this morning. Um, so I guess Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, as I researched frantically this morning, has uh, had three different, I guess, what would you call that, iterations. And so the second iteration did include Ebenezer as well. So as one not gifted in singing, Oftentimes, the hymns that we sing are also good poetry. I thought maybe I'd recite verse 2 of Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, because it does reference Ebenezer, and then we'll talk about what that means and what it applies for us today. So, verse 2 of Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing says, Here I raise my Ebenezer. Hither by thy help I'm come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He, to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. So an Ebenezer is a stone of help. So you can see they set the stone up in 1 Samuel, Samuel did, as almost as a memorial, as something to remember God's help for his people. And I think that's uh, appropriate as we come to studying church history, as we look at God's work in building his church throughout all of history, um, that really... The Reformation and the early church fathers, um, the councils that talked about um, the uh, deity of Christ in the early part of the church, those type things are things we need to remember and they are our Ebenezer's, to use the term here from the scriptures. So that's our goal today, is to see the Reformation and for the next five weeks as God's stone of help, something that we should remember, a memorial that we should have in understanding who God is and what he's done throughout history. So my goal here is also to look at church history, to see God's providential hand in building his church. You see, I had this quote, I've taught this lesson before, um, this time with a lot more knowledge, I hope, um, because the other time I taught this lesson, I'd had like three days notice that I was teaching, Um, but it was my inauguration into teaching adult Sunday school. And I had this quote from my previous lesson that said, Christianity is not a religion of mere abstractions. It's not a mystical religion, nor is it purely philosophical speculation. No, it is God has revealed himself at real places and at specific times. In other words, God is a God of history. There's the corny saying that all of history is his story. It's God's story. So, When we look at church history, we need to come to a place of understanding it's God's work at building his church. God has been at work in history, and our hope is built on the fact that he is and will continue to work in history, and it is his story. So the Reformation, which we'll talk about today, is an important aspect of church history because it probably, after the close of the canon, is the most important time in the history of the church because of all the things we'll talk about today. We all owe a tremendous debt of gratitude to Martin Luther and other reformers, because of the stand they took and the sacrifices they made, so by the end of the series, I hope that you have a better understanding of the Reformation and why it should be one of our Ebenezer's, one of our stones of help. So over the next few weeks, we'll look at several reformers. I just threw out all the, some a high level of the reformers: Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, John Knox, the Anabaptists, the English reformers, and maybe a few lesser known ones as well. Uh, but this this week. We have a daunting challenge before us. Um, I kind of want to address the history of the church from around 500 AD until Martin Luther nails the 95 theses um, at the church door in Wittenberg on October 31st, 1517. So this is going to be a high-level view of 1,000 years of church history. But I think it's important that we set the stage. History just doesn't happen. Luther didn't just wake up one day and decide... Hey, here's my complaints against the Catholic Church. I'm going to nail them to the church where he was in Wittenberg, Germany. And then the Reformation happened. There's a lot of events that happened. So history does not happen in a vacuum. It's important to understand. So I think it's imperative that we look at some characteristics of the church in the Middle Ages. um, Some early attempts to reform the church. What were the conditions of the world like in the world? A lot of things were going on at that time in the world things that were rapidly changing society and the church had to respond to that okay um please understand we're going to refer to the church there is no other church technically besides the roman catholic church at this time before the reformation so when i use the term church please understand i use it loosely you're going to have people that are not saved and people that are saved but there is the church hierarchy the structure that's in place um, and there are genuine believers in that in this time um, and then there are those that obviously are not believers that are heretics. So please understand that. So before we start getting into the Middle Ages, let's pray. Bow your heads with me. Dear Lord, have we come before you, and Lord, we do worship you because you are a God of history. Lord, you in time and space sent forth your Son, Lord, to live the life that we couldn't live, to die the death that we deserved so that we could be saved. Oh, Lord, that is a precious reality And, Lord, that's what these reformers were trying to bring the church back into belief, to understand the reality of the gospel, to understand the authority of the scriptures. Lord, I um, praise you for that. Lord, that you, by your Holy Spirit, indwelt them and motivated them. So it's not them that we praise, but you, Lord. So I pray that that would be our heart's cry today, Lord, that we would worship you more as we see your hand in the development and growth and the change of your church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so the Middle Ages. When we talk about the Middle Ages in history, it's also the medieval era. If you do not have a handout, just raise your hand. No, it looks like everybody's, every single person has one. Okay, there's a couple hands here. Do you have some, Jimmy? (laughs) When we refer to the Middle Ages, we're pretty much thinking, let's just think holistically about the year 500 to the year 1500, Okay. So this is a time when, you know, give, it, give or take 75, 50 years on each side of that, that, so the Roman Empire has ended. Um, around 400 AD is when the Roman Empire became conjoined with the Christian church. Um, so really for that thousand year period, that medieval age, middle ages, or some call it the dark ages, the church um, pretty much existed in a different time. Roman Empire was gone, um, so the, that, that, the Roman Empire did a lot to solidify Western Europe. However, at this time, with its, it crumbling and failing, different states kind of got broken up and were not as cohesive. It was also the age of feudalism. If you guys remember from your studies in history, hopefully in school, feudalism was the idea of the royalty, the nobles, um, the peasants or the serfs, so you kind of had this uh, system of how everybody ranked in society, and that was pretty much it. You had the haves and the have-nots, um, and the peasants and the serfs pretty much lived for the nobles and for the royalty. Uh, so that's the society that we're in during the Middle Ages. So what what did the church do during that time? I have several things on your notes here. Um, this is the time when uh, monasticism began. So monasticism, you're thinking monasteries, monks. Um, definitely orders were formed um, around the monastic movement um, so that's when men decided to dedicate themselves to the church and to the Lord uh, by um, joining what we would call monastic orders or cloisters and several of those were founded the best known probably was the Franciscans which was founded by St. Francis of Assisi and also the Augustinians which is important because Martin Luther is an August was an Augustinian monk, and also where the Dominicans founded, and they were known for their scholastic rigor. The idea here is, people were choosing to live lives set apart in the monasteries, yet that wasn't the most embodied way of living the Christian life, but that was happening at this time. Also, something that was important to this is more to the everyday person within the church was the movement for pilgrimages. All right, so you had this kind of tradition being set up where relics were being kind of um, collected and relics were being, uh, a relic would be like the, uh, maybe the stone that David used to kill Goliath, something like that. Or, or, or maybe it was the uh, tunic uh, that Jesus was wearing when he washed the disciples' feet, you know, something like that. So, so they they'd find an item and claim that it had this Authenticity, Usually not. Actually, all the times not, I would guess. Um, there probably was no verifiable proof of that. But they set up these these pilgrimages, and there would be like, in Europe, at 1,500, there were 1,600 different pilgrimaging sites. So the, the faithful would think, in order for me to get right with God, I would need to tour to one of these spots. And these, these uh, relics weren't limited to items that you would find in Scripture. They were also... Um, um, items that would be used by saints or something like that. Like it might be the bone of one of the saints, and you would go to it, and, and it would be part of your, your, your spiritual pilgrimage. So it helped promote the tradition of the church, but oftentimes these became idols for the people, and it was an attempt for them to gain favor with God. And the key here is the church was promoting this to the individuals to go. So we had the pilgrimage movements in the church. There's going to be a ringing theme here of what's missing at the end, so stay with me here and we'll talk about it. Next was the church was identified by the Crusades. So the Crusades were an attempt by um, the Catholic Church and the local political authorities in Europe to try to recapture the Holy Land. Um, the I guess Muhammad's, M- Muhammad's followers, the Islam, had gone and taken, to over, taken over the Holy Land. Um, so this was an attempt to go and retake that Um, and at times for several hundred years the holy land would be in the hands of the christians um, but many times it wasn't Um, and overall we know that the holy land did not stay in christian hands but this thing this the crusades had several impacts one thing was it one thing that's important to know is in 1054 in the medieval church the roman catholic church and the greek orthodox church split so um, the Roman Catholic Church obviously making its home in Rome, and the uh, Greek Orthodox Church, the Eastern Church, making its home in Constantinople, which is Istanbul today. Um, that happened in 1054. The Crusades, however, created even greater divide between those two churches, so they would never become connected again. Uh, because of the Crusades, the church's view of war really changed. It's the idea that you can use war as a method the church is sponsoring war as a method um, to accomplish what it wants um, and it really was the forerunner to what the church then would do to stamp out heresy said hey it was okay to go to the promi- uh, to the to the holy land and to uh, go after this to try to recover that land and kill all these people in the process of trying to do that so then these heretics that rise up during the time of the reformation the church almost had approval of that because of what they did because of the Crusades. So we can see how that impacted future generations. But one thing that maybe positively, definitely positively impacted um, the church and all of Western European culture was that trade routes were changed. Um, So you didn't have to go through, there was more trade being done with more Eastern um, societies. So influences that had happened in uh, Greek culture, or um, the Middle East, had started having influences uh, on Western Europe. Okay, so that's a positive change, and we'll talk about some of those things in a minute. Um, so the Crusades was a, uh, a monumental thing during the medieval church, the Middle Ages. Also was the cathedral, those towering, towering, amazing architectural Gothic-type style structures were built. You think about, uh, you know, the Notre Dame or something like that in, in France, Those huge, huge uh, facilities that are amazing architectural designs were were built at this time. Um, And those really, if you you look at them, they were designed for the administration of the Mass. It's purely around the system and the sacrament of the Mass. So the cathedral itself, they made these towering figures, which tells you a little bit about the church and the fact that people were living in huts for the most part. And they were building these extravagant extravagant building so the church had a lot of wealth Um, and that's definitely um, something that happened for ages and continues today Uh, next um, the papacy when i talk about the papacy it's the pope it's the understanding of the pope being the head of the roman catholic church and it was identified by a struggle throughout all of this time between the pope and the different heads of state that the roman catholic church kind of was in um, so it was constant battle between that. There was times where the papacy was in the hands of multiple competing men at the same time. How do you do that? How do you trace back the apostolic? Because the, the pope is the apostolic heir of Peter. Um, how do you do that when there's three popes at one time? Kind of impact. Think about that as you think about the history of the church. The papacy of the Middle Ages had lar- largely become corrupt and immoral. For an example, Pope Innocent VIII was hardly innocent. He was the father of 16 illegitimate children, and he acknowledged that openly. Um, The papacy and the church was identified by excessive wealth. In 1502, 75% of all the money in France was controlled by the church. Shocking. 50% of the German state's wealth was owned by the church. And in Scotland, more than 50% of the real estate was owned by the church. So just think about that dynamic and how pure could the church really be with that type of wealth. Many of the popes and bishops got their jobs by the way of simony, which is the idea that somebody pretty much paid to put them in that place. That's how they got their jobs. So we're looking at a pretty corrupt system of the church. And then you mix that with the whole feudal system where the common people, the peasants, the serfs were completely uneducated. There was no education being done for them. Um, and as, you, as I talk about these highlights of the Middle Ages for the church, there's one thing that stands out. I didn't mention the Bible at all. I didn't mention it at all. There's no Bible in the, in the language of the people. Um, so even the Mass, as it was administered, was done in Latin, and it was done that way in the Roman Catholic Church for centuries afterwards too. Um, and any teaching that was done during the church service was done in Latin as well. The extent of truth that people got really were morality plays. You guys seen the idea of what a morality play is? And it's just pretty much actors acting out a scene from the scriptures. But nothing about true repentance and faith. So that's why this is kind of the dark ages. I mean, you don't have the the one glaring thing is you don't have the light of the gospel. Um, as um, mentioned in God's word primarily. And that's why it's the dark ages. And, it's, and, and I think... It need, the church needed reform, and it was obvious that it needed to happen. So, next thing we'll look at um, are societal changes prior to the Reformation. And I put several things out here, um, just so you can understand what's going on around 1450, maybe early 1400s, to the time of Luther, which is 1517. The first major thing is Dante's Divine Comedy. You guys know like Dante's Inferno, and that kind of stuff. There's like three different works that... Dante wrote um, in Italy in the 1300s. Why do I talk about that? It's it's an interesting story. I'm sure all of you guys can take the time to read it. I have not read it, Um, and it, it was a critique of some aspect of the church. But some some argue that Dante is the first modern man because what he wrote he wrote in Italian. So it was in the vernacular of the people. It wasn't in Latin. Every work had been written in Latin to that day, yet. There was still more to come. So Dante is important at this time. Next also, it was an age of discovery. New things were being invented. And the most important new thing being invented was the movable type printing press. And that was done in the 1400s by Johannes Gutenberg in Germany. So the printing press allowed for the proliferation of ideas. And I'll talk specifically next week about how it was important to Luther. Because it is unbelievable some of the things we'll talk about with that. But think of the situation prior to the printing press. So if you didn't have a printing press that would print things, that means to copy something or to write something, you had to write a manuscript, right? So it's just on a scroll or on a piece of paper or something like that. Um, so in order to, so for somebody to write a book, you'd have to write it out. And get, so think how few books would have been produced, Okay. There's no movable-type printing press to help proliferate those books. So one historian writes about manuscripts. So think about, as you get a manuscript, then somebody has to copy it if you want that manuscript. Think about how many mistakes could happen. But the illegibility of manuscripts and the cost and inaccuracy of manuscript copies made learning almost exclusively the province of the elite who had both leisure and a Latin education. But printing began to change all that. So you can see, if you didn't know Latin, that's one thing, and if you didn't have access to these handwritten books or uh, scrolls, you're going to be limited in what you could learn. Um, but the printing press changed all that. Um, there's also a revived interest in astronomy. Um, that kind of came because of the, the, those trade routes from the Near East. So for hundreds of years, the dominant cosmological theory was that of Ptolemy who taught that the earth was the center of the universe. And that fit really good with the Roman Catholic Church's view of man and God and all that, and that that, that earth was the center of the universe. That is the, I'm not a scientist, guys, but that was the geocentric model, okay? But the Catholic Church had adopted this and taught that, that since man was the most wonderful part of creation, that man's home, earth, must be the center of creation. But we've since learned other things. And in 1473, there's a man by the name of Copernicus that was born. He studied the heavens and began to see that there were problems with the geocentric model. And he eventually became convinced that the sun was in fact the center of the universe, not the earth, which was the heliocentric model. Now Copernicus made this view, but he refused to really produce it, um, afraid that he'd be persecuted by the church and he did not take it to the next level and produce it. But another man did, Galileo, and his newly invented telescope corroborated Copernicus's theory, thus once again undermining the Catholic Church's teaching about the earth being the center uh, of of the universe. William Eastep, a church historian, points out that the new discoveries were upsetting. Medieval man had never imagined the earth to be so large or populated with so many unknown aborigines, and at the same time, to be such an infinitesimal speck in the unfathomable universe. We have answers for this. We can, if, if people had the scriptures, they would have answers for this to some degree, but the people don't have scriptures. Um, so also, besides it being an age of discovery, it was also an age of exploration. So we think about where we are, 1450, around 1500, what happens in 1492? Columbus sails the ocean blue. So the new world is found also other trade routes were found ships were being built that could go all the way around um, the continent of africa the very point of that is the cape of good hope and vasca da gama sailed all the way around the cape of good hope all the way to india um, you know where columbus was hoping to go Um, and they were able to that increased trade routes and also just broadened how big the world was that it wasn't just this flat surface um, you know, contained within what was known by um, Western Europe and the Middle East. So the Age of Exploration was going on, and all these things are changing society, making probably the Church less and less influential because it's kind of eroding at its authority and its power. Other thing that was happening was these two things are more political. Nations were in the making, so nations like Spain, England, France weren't. They were just kind of small. Parts of the Roman Catholic Church's hierarchy, but now as these uh, uh, trade routes were changing, um, money was starting to flow in to those, to individuals within that, nations started getting their identity. Uh, so there was a, an idea around nations. And that is really helpful when we come to Luther, is because Luther and Calvin, and to some extent Zwingli, these are the big reformers, all had the assistance of nations or states to some degree to help propel the things they were talking about in their reformation efforts so they had the support of those so the fact that these nations were building it kind of undermined where all the power used to be here with the Roman Catholic Church now these nations start to have some power and it starts eroding away the power that the church has um, also as part of the nations being built it was the rise of capitalism towns were starting to grow um, you start having larger big cities especially in port areas and there started growing a middle class so that whole idea of feudalism where you had the kings and the nobles and the serfs and the peasants down here you started getting some wealth moving up from the peasants and serfs into the middle class so they started becoming a legitimate little middle class who was eager to learn and to become educated it was also the time of the renaissance which was a renewed emphasis on the greek classics and also we the arts and things like that. That's what we most often identify with the the, uh, Renaissance. But each of these things kind of contributed to eroding away at the Catholic Church's power and influence. So those are all... That's a lot of stuff. Wow. Huh. Okay. (laughs) But that wasn't the extent of what was eroding at the Church's power because really, the things that really helped change the Church... um, and caused the Reformation to happen were um, reforms in the theological aspect of things. Um, That's the next thing we'll look at is, on your notes, the early movements of reform. So we'll look at several things. So like I said, Luther didn't just, you know, have these ideas on his own in 1517, and then, you know, uh, the mallet sounded more like that, and nailed the door, nailed the 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church. But there were other works at play. The first group of people, so let me talk about the Renaissance for a second. We all think about the Renaissance and we think about um, art, uh, um, literature, um, architecture, those type of things. But one of the major parts of the Renaissance, and there's kind of a southern Italian type Renaissance, and there's a northern Renaissance, which is more, takes place in areas of Germany. Just for your information, Germany is not a state at this point. They're not a country of its own. There's all these different regions that make up what Germany is today. Okay? Things like, I don't know, we'll get to them. Um, I can't name them offhand. So, but in the Southern uh, Renaissance, the Italian Renaissance, that's where you have like your Michelangelos and your uh, Da Vinci's and those type of guys. Um, so definitely some things going on there. But in the Northern Renaissance, what really was a big player was a return to the sources. So in Latin, we would call that ad fontes. And what that is, is taking... The literature, the things that were in classical Greek and Roman culture, and reading those and analyzing those in their original language versus something different, uh, versus um, just taking a translation of something. Um, So this was this return to the original sources was key to what we call the Northern Renaissance. Okay? And in the Northern Renaissance, several people started using that as they read through the scriptures. Okay. So the Bible at this time was primarily only in Latin. But was the Bible originally written in Latin? No. It was written in Greek. Um, at least the New Testament was. Old Testament, obviously, written in Hebrew. Um, but the uh, Latin Bible was translated from the Greek Bible around 400 A.D. Um, so everybody, the, the Bible that got passed down was a, you know, a copy of, of a Latin translated Bible. So we were really dependent upon the guy whose name is Jerome who translated the Bible into Latin. We hope he did a really good job for about a thousand years because that's what we had. We had the Latin Bible translated by Jerome and then handwritten and copied by hundreds of scribes over, over several centuries. That's what we had. So there was a need to kind of go back to the original sources. So there's a, it's a group of guys in the Netherlands and Germany, it was called the Brethren of the Common Life. And they were members of the Northern Renaissance. They were founded by a guy named, by the name of Gerhard Groot. That's a good name. I bet he was manly. Um, he was born in 1350, and he founded the Brethren of the Common Life. And their hope was to reform the church through education. One of his chief followers was a man by the name of John Wessel. Um, he was born, uh, or he, was, he became a leader in 1445. And he taught against things like um, indulgence selling. He rejected the idea of transubstantiation. These are very medieval Catholic ideas. And he also promoted the idea of justification by faith alone, which is the hallmark of uh, Luther's um, ex- uh, Reformation. Other known, well, well-known brethren were a guy by the name of thomas a Kempis, who wrote the primary devotional work of the age it's called the imitation of christ and then also uh, about a century later a guy by the name of erasmus who's a very known well-known european humanist um, who was definitely devoted to the uh, the uh, original sources these guys taught what was called the devotia moderna which was the idea of intense devotion and discipleship to christ so the brethren of the common life were almost two centuries before luther yet they already had some of these ideas in england you guys are familiar with this one most likely there's a man by the name of john Wycliffe. his nickname is the morning star of the reformation he lived in england from 1328 to 1374 and he opposed a lot of things going on with the church. A lot of folks disagreed, or agreed that the fact that the church needed help, and it needed to change. They saw the excessive wealth, they saw the immorality, or they were aware of the immorality of the leadership, um, and they saw, they believed that it should change, and Wycliffe took a public stance on that. He even called the Pope the Antichrist, um, maybe a precursor to Luther, because Luther did that on several occasions. Um, He believed that the Bible alone should be authority for the church not church tradition or papal decree which was getting a lot of headway at that time his greatest achievement was translating the bible into the english language so that's why we have Wycliffe translators today it's named after uh, john Wycliffe. now Wycliffe, you might think that dan in january talked about tyndale translating the bible you guys remember that Um, Well, Tyndale was the first one to translate the Bible from the Greek into English. Wycliffe translated the Latin Bible into English, okay? So we kind of have two different sets of their translations and find them both necessary and important figures in church history. His followers were a group called the Lollards. And after Wycliffe died, uh, many of them were persecuted um, by the Catholic Church, and martyred for their stances for their opposition to the church and the pope. So that's the Lollards were his followers. Next person that was important for starting, doing some reformation before Luther was a man by the name of John Huss. He lived in, from 1369 to 1450, 15, excuse me, 1369 to 1415. He was heavily influenced by Wycliffe, and he was in Bohemia, Bohemia. Anybody know where that is? I didn't. Uh, it's the modern day Czech Republic, sort of like Prague is. Um, he would, what's amazing is he was heavily influenced by Wycliffe. Wycliffe's in England over here, you know, I mean, Czech Republic, that's Eastern European culture right there. But Wycliffe's ideas were getting there, getting there without the printing press, because it was before the printing press. Um, but somehow it was getting there. And uh, Huss was very sympathetic to what. Um, Wycliffe was teaching, so he also preached against the corruption of the church. He um, held to the view that Christ alone is the head of the church, not Christ and, you know, the the uh, papacy. Um, he believed that one could be in the church, so be doing all the things the church says to do, but be very far from God because he didn't see. He kind of believed in justification, and he believed in God's sovereignty over salvation um so he he was very much criticized in 1415 he died because he was condemned by the council of constance um, which was a church council um, to try to help reform the church and one of the things they were going to do was root out the heretics that was one of their goals Um, so despite much support from a lot of people in the bohemian area and the emperor um, hus was burned at the stake like in england the, the Roman Catholic the church at the time pursued and killed many of the Hussites, who were the followers of John Huss. And that was the decree of the Council of Constance in 1415, was to not only kill Huss, but to stamp out those that were preaching what he had espoused. So that's kind of ironic that the council, that's the next thing on your notes, is the conciliar movement, which is the attempt by the roman catholic church to reform itself by councils okay so there's there's some in the church itself that says hey we need some reform and the things that we need to reform are man we've got some leadership that's really immoral it's really depraved we need to change that we also need to you know um, root out the heresy that's there Um, there there's also there's a time where i mentioned that there were three popes at one time (laughs) they called a council to identify who is the real pope because they had three in different places, so they all made appeals to that. Um, So that was the idea behind the conciliar movement. They had three different councils set up that met for years to try to improve and reform the church. Um, So they desired for the church to change, but what's ironic is that men like Huss and Wycliffe were really wanting to just simplify the church and have pure devotion to Christ, and yet they saw them as heretics and killed them and killed their followers. So it's kind of a, hey, we, wanted, we want to reform the church, but we don't want to go that far. You know, we still kind of want our power. We still kind of want the money that we have, uh, that we've assembled. But we, don't, we, want to, we want to change, we want to be better, but not that far. And they went so far as to kill those guys. So very ironic that they felt like they should have changed. Um, of course, they did solve the problem of having three popes. So that was the one thing they did do. And they killed all the evangelical people. Not evangelical, the Protestants at the time. Um, So the next one I want to highlight then is Erasmus and the idea of humanism. So Erasmus is kind of a, he's a contemporary of Luther. Um, Kind of gets popular and famous right before Luther comes on the stage of world events. So he was a famous pupil of the Brethren of the Common Life. Who ridiculed the monks of the day. Really, the monasteries, as they were originally set up as places where people would become devoted to Christ and um, you know, really live lives of devotion, had kind of changed. A lot of times it kind of had been a, a ground for uh, wealth to be accumulated. A lot of those areas I was talking about where the church had accumulated a lot of uh, real estate, it was in monasteries, so uh, oftentimes a lot of monasteries had gone from places of sacrifice and devotion to areas of luxury and those that became monks would be like the uh, the sons of noble people would then put their children in in monasteries and they would just live lives of um, licentiousness and uh, and wealth so erasmus was critical of that so as a humanist he he believed in that the church needed reform as well but he wasn't going to go as far as Luther. Uh, but he was well-known throughout all of, of Europe. He was criticized on one end by the Roman Catholic Church for wanting to reform as much as he did, but then he was also criticized by Luther and the reformers as they come onto the scene for not wanting to go far enough. So he kind of he played the middle, middle path there. He and Luther corresponded back and forth on theological matters. His most important work, though, was his compilation and translation of the Greek New Testament, which he produced in 1516. So that's about 70 years after the printing press had been invented, and it was in full swing at that time. So now we've got a Greek translation of the New Testament, which then became the basis for all further translations that were in the language of the common people. Okay, so Erasmus whereby he doesn't embrace all the Reformed ideals and theologies that we would embrace. He plays an important role in the Reformation because of his Greek New Testament. Okay? So then, Luther does that. He translates the, translates the uh, Erasmus's Greek New Testament into German. Um, Calvin does it into French. Um, and then Tyndale does it into English. Monumental changes because of what Erasmus did. And he believed in the He was instrumental in the idea of the ad fontes, a return to the original sources. So that gets us to all that stuff, all those people kind of paved the road for Luther in 1517, okay? I've got a couple things I wanted to highlight. Just what is the the theology going on in the church at this time? What is it? What are what are some of the things that need to be reformed, and why Luther and the other reformers were so concerned about that? Um, The first thing, several just relative to the papacy and the idea of the pope, um, the pope often. So let's not get into the idea of should the pope should we believe in the pope or not. We'll get to that. But often the pope was elevated more for political and financial reasons rather than theological. So he wasn't the shepherd of this big church. He was instead promoted based on what was the best and most expedient thing at the time for the church uh in the papacy immorality was rampant you know there was um you know multiple you know relationships going on with women um children being fathered yet the pope was supposed to be celibate and not married in any way um so there was gross immorality and extreme wealth i can't emphasize that enough um And not only was there extreme wealth, but there was a desire to keep increasing that wealth. Um, So that contributed to the sale of indulgences. And indulgences um, helped to build St. Peter's Church in the Vatican. I'm going to get into indulgences in two minutes. Um, So those are all concerns relative to the papacy. But that doesn't have anything to do with the fact that the Bible doesn't really teach that there should be one head of the church um, here on earth um, that's based on a misapplication of uh, what jesus commanded and stated to peter upon this rock i will build this church Um, so there are plenty of biblical reasons to oppose that but there was just reasons as far as wealth and immorality um, and the reasons people got promoted to the papacy that was a concern as well but then how the church forgave sin was a huge aspect of the middle ages in the middle uh, in the medieval roman catholic church They put a great emphasis on the punishment for sin in purgatory and hell. So, purgatory, some of you guys know, is the place where the saved would go to be cleansed by fire before they are fit for heaven. So, there's another layer of torment, I guess, they would experience prior to entering eternal rest. Um If you were more faithful, if you showed fidelity to the sacraments on earth, that meant less time in purgatory. So, things around forgiveness, the uh, sacraments around that included baptism, the Eucharist, which is the taking of the Mass, a penance, and extreme unction. Extreme unction is last rites. Um, But penance really was the key. Um, Penance was the key, and absolution by a priest was necessary. The idea was that the priest had to pardon and release any punishment from a person. There are three elements to this. First, a person had to show contrition. You know, ask forgiveness. Say, I'm sorry for committing this act. Next thing they have to do is confess it to the priest. So, there's, no, there's, there's a mediator. There's a mediator between uh, God and man, and it's not Jesus. The mediator is the priest stands before the people, not the priesthood of all believers. Um, but then they also had to make satisfaction for that sin. Um, so the priest would decide what the sinner would do to make satisfaction for the sin. Um, this ranged from saying a certain number of prayers, depending on the severity of the sin, fasting, giving to charity, maybe recommending someone to go on a pilgrimage may recommend them be part of the crusades. Um, sometimes it involved physical pain. You know, you should beat yourself um, to punish yourself for those sins. Um, so just think how, how, how different that is than the way that we handle it, where we take our sins and confess them straight to Jesus, but that you then, not only, you have to pay for your sins, you have to make satisfaction for your sins. But the church got real creative so, yeah, you have to do all these steps to satisfy um, the punishment for your sin here on earth um, so you don't have to spend as much time in purgatory. But the church got real creative, and that's when they came up with the idea of indulgences. Um, indulgences are pretty much forgiveness that you can purchase instead of doing these other things that you do to satisfy your sin, the punishment for your sin. Um, so you, instead of going on a pilgrimage to see that holy relic, you could pay some money to the church, and they would give you this little certificate that says you have been you your uh, sin has been forgiven, and the punishment has been taken away from you because you paid this fine. So, wow, how much money did the church make off of that? Um, um, so, pretty much, it would be you committing a crime, deserving of. A penalty, let's say, going to jail, and instead of doing that because the jails are overcrowded, they allow you to pay a fine. And yet, that's what people's hope was in, right? People's hope was in the fact that they were paying this fine so they were right before God and justified before God because of that. Also, though, the church took it even further that one could also buy indulgences, um, the indulgence form for their family and their friends who were in purgatory. So, there was no... Um, um, you know, ability to understand or uh, assurance that someone was saved—it's just kind of hoping. So the church would promote this, and you would be feeling guilty if you were not spending money to help spring your person, your loved one, your friend out of purgatory. Quite the enterprise of this. Now they got this idea that so well, th- there's a word here I didn't know how to pronounce it. I had to ask Mark Hamilton. Um, and I probably won't say it right, but the word is supererogation. So it's the word super, E-R-O-G-A-T-I-O-N. What this is is that there's the, there is a treasury in heaven of merit, okay? That is, Christ, he not only fulfilled the law perfectly, he fulfilled the law above and beyond that. So there's treasury of merit in heaven that's available um, to sinners, and to the faithful i guess also though the saints those that have been honored by the church honor the law perfectly as well so they have merit that was stored up in heaven as well okay so the idea of super is that that is the practice of doing what is above what is required does that make sense so the church then has this deposit box full of merit that as it chooses it can dispense that merit to other people they might do it by you going on a pilgrimage or you going on the crusades or they might do it because you've paid a lot of money and you've purchased indulgences but it was the church and the pope as the um physical head of christ's church here on earth he had the ability to distribute that merit so very dangerous um that that's what they're tapping into to uh to get uh, holiness from their people um, so they believe that Christ was the first one to earn rewards above what the law required since he was perfect so there's extra merit in heaven they got this from the parable the young, the rich young ruler so you know where it says the, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says what do I need to, be to do to be saved and he pretty much says get rid of everything and serve me forever right and he didn't do it right that's the key to that he didn't want to do that because he loved the things of this earth right but they're saying that if he, had, if he had obeyed that command of Jesus, that would have been the first person that would have done more than the law had required. And that he would have then had some merits in heaven stored up for himself and for others. Very complicated, I know. Um, so the saints did these things as well. That's, where, that's the justification. I don't want to just teach that. They didn't, have any, they didn't try to use the scriptures at all in any way, but that was their defense for it. Um, the church taught that the Pope was the authority of Christ on earth to distribute these excess merits to the church members. This resulted in people paying fines, not, not working out their salvation based on the church's standards, and then also lined the coffers of the papacy and the church. So it was the indulgence selling in Europe that really set Luther off. Um, so that is all my lesson, but a couple things I want to exhort to you just as you consider the Reformation— Uh, Number one, praise God that we have been passed down a consistent devotion to the word, that we are not in this dark age where the scripture is not available to us. Praise God for the sufficiency of Christ's work. I mean, imagine if you're living in that time and you're working and working and beating yourself up over and over. And, you know, our people that we know that are Catholic today, a lot of times this is what they're dealing with. But praise God for Christ's work that's not dependent on us. Um, Praise God that he preserved the purity of both his word and his true church as he promised he would do. Um, And I would say, think about the dark ages, the middle ages, whatever you want to call it. Think about how bleak that must have been. But God, being rich in mercy, was faithful to build his church. So be encouraged. You know that there's it's a different time to be a christian an evangelical in america today but i would argue it's not nearly as bleak as it was in the year 1000 okay so be encouraged that we have many great blessings from the lord okay um let us pray and you can go i think dan has done all the announcements today um so if you're going to the second service look forward to him doing some announcements let us pray Lord, we praise you, Lord, that you are building your church. Lord, we are so grateful for the reality that it is you at work. It's not based on what we do, Lord, but it's your work. But Lord, we also praise you that you use us as your instruments, that you use men, Lord, to uh, bring about the changes you would have for your church. Lord, we uh, commit this day to you, Lord. Thank you for giving it to us where we can gather together and worship and praise and fellowship one with another. I pray we would do that today well, Lord. I pray that we would um, look for ways to honor each other and to serve each other. In Christ's name we pray, amen.